Welcome to Triumphant's Podcast with Pastor Perrin, preaching on the Word of God. Today's podcast, the pastor will start a series entitled, Try Praying. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 39 through 46, it reads like this from the English Standard Version. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops, like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping on prayer? Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of God for the people of God. And so we say, thanks be to God. This morning, I would like to title the sermon from our passage. I would like to title it, The Worth of Prayer. The Worth of Prayer. We are gathered here this morning, albeit virtually together, because of the verified report of over 2,000 years that the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. That's why we are here. And indeed, it is because the tomb is empty that we sing with loud, triumphant voices that death could not hold him down, that he is the risen king. And yet, strikingly, some still try to refute and deny the report of the empty tomb. But I'm not quite sure how one dismisses or argues with an empty tomb. Luke, in a few more chapters, will tell us that Jesus will die by crucifixion and he would be buried in a tomb that is sealed shut by a stone. And that after that, early on the first day of the week, somebody say early. On the first day of the week, the women who had been disciples of Jesus, they came to his tomb. And when they got there, they saw that the tomb, the stone at the at the, at the mouth of the tomb, had been rolled away. Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, he brilliantly points out that the stone had been moved not so that Jesus could get out of the grave, but so that the witnesses could get in, so that they could go in and witness the empty tomb. And so when these women get to the tomb with the stone rolled away, they go in these unlikeliest of witnesses. Back in that time, it would have been 
the unlikeliness of women to witness such a significant thing. But when they went in to their utter shock and surprise, they found no body. They were scared and frightened that when they went into the tomb as witnesses, they found no body. The tomb was empty. And Christianity is the only religion that rests its faith on the risen Savior. We're the only religion that rests our faith in a risen Savior. It is the evidence of an empty tomb that we rest our faith on. And because the empty tomb, I keep going on. That's my answer to the, to the question, because the tomb is empty. Because the tomb is empty, I keep going on. Because the empty tomb is proof that our Savior lives. And because he lives, I can keep going. I can keep going even though the circumstances of my life may not be ideal. I can keep going even though we don't get to worship together in person. I keep pressing forward and I can keep moving ahead because the tomb is still empty. So I want to remind you that as we celebrate this day, we celebrate it rightfully. We don't need to be bashful or ashamed, or reserved, we should be loud and boisterous about our faith because we have the proof that the tomb is still empty. So when people fell into church in droves on Easter Sunday morning like they would do no other Sunday, make sure you fell into church as well. Make sure you tune online as well because we have an empty tomb that testifies to why we believe and why we place our faith in Jesus. However, while I have your attention as we celebrate this day when Jesus was raised from the dead, I want to caution us to resist the urge to unhitch this day from what precedes this day. Because this day didn't come without great sacrifice, grueling suffering, And even as we read in our text this morning, intense agony. This makes me think about someone I know who told me that whenever people look at him and the success he has had in life, and they begin to suggest that he was somehow or another, he was an overnight success. He always responds, if I'm an overnight success, then that was one long night. And see, as we celebrate this day, and rightfully so, we have to remember Easter Sunday did not happen overnight. See, so many of us, we know the outcome of this Sunday. And we know that it makes us know that we can believe that Sundays are possible even in our own situations. We know that God can resurrect dead situations and that we are to expect Sunday miracles in our own life. However, my concern is that too many of us have trouble getting to Sunday because we want to circumvent Friday and Saturday. My friend and colleague, Reverend Charlie Dates, Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates, pastors, 
Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago, he puts it this way. He says that the scene of our text this morning reminds us that there is no glory in life without some grief in life. The other night, my family was together watching a movie, and after the movie went off, one of my sons came to me and said, Dad, you know how you want to know the end of a movie before the end happens? He said, that's what that movie was like for me. I wanted to know the end of the movie before the end happened. And all too often, that's how most of us are in life. We want to know the end without having to go through the parts in the beginning and in the middle before you get to the end. We want to jump right to the end. And that's what I'm guilty of. Some of you know, I think I've shared this before. I love, I love the Home Garden Channel, um, HGTV, and I, and I love the renovation shows. But I'll tell you, sometimes I'll record it, and what I'll do is I'll watch the beginning scene, and then I'll fast forward so that I can see the end scene. Because I just like to see the before and the after. But in the middle, there is so much dust. There is so much chaos. There is so much disorder. But all of that is necessary in order to get to the end. And what Jesus models for us in this garden scene is what the process of getting to Sunday looks like. And even more specifically, where it begins. In reading Reverend Dr. Gardner C. Taylor's treatment of this, Matthew, of this account that Matthew writes, he, 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 he talks about, and I learned from him, the source of the mighty Mississippi River. The Mississippi River stretches 2,318 miles long. It empties out into the Gulf of Mexico. It expands to 11 miles at its widest point. And it is still a mile wide when it makes its way to New Orleans, Louisiana. However, at its source, way up at Lake Itasca in northern Minnesota, the Mississippi River begins as a small stream that is so narrow that a child can stand with a foot on one side and the second foot on the other side. Dr. Cheller would point out that just as the mighty Mississippi River expands to 11 miles at one point wide, it begins so small. And so, too, the great public victory of Calvary and the empty tomb, it has its source immediately in a private, solitary act in a garden called Gethsemane. See, we must keep in mind that the atoning work on Calvary isn't possible without the agonizing prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. And the resurrection power displayed on Easter Sunday morning would not have been possible without the Savior earnestly praying on Good Friday morning. By allowing us to peer into this agonizing garden scene, Luke helps us learn something of the worth of prayer. I remember growing up in church, during devotion times, I would often hear old folks say what I thought I heard them say, at least. I thought I heard them say, if you know the word of prayer, pray my strength in the Lord. But later in life, my dad told me, no, they weren't, they weren't actually saying, if you know the word of prayer. They're actually saying, if you know the 
worth of prayer. Pray my strength in the Lord. Because it's not just knowing what to say or how to say it. It's knowing its power. But it's also knowing its benefit. It is knowing the usefulness of prayer. It is knowing the value of prayer. See, I believe we see Jesus in this scene model something for us that we need to demonstrate in our own lives. I believe what we see Jesus model shows us that if we were to try praying, as Jesus prays here in this scene, that we too can come to know the worth of prayer. Perhaps you're experiencing an agonizing Good Friday moment in your life that you wish would pass you by. Perhaps you're experiencing something that has been keeping you up all night long. Something that you feel the weight of and it is unbearable for you to hold. Perhaps you have a trial that you're facing that you do not know how to handle. Folks, I believe that if we try praying and look closely at what Jesus models for us here, we might be surprised at what comes out of our prayers. In fact, I believe Jesus models for us something that we need to adapt to our own prayer life. Notice that Jesus prayed habitually. It's right there in verse number 39 as Luke sets the scene for us in this garden. He calls it the Mount of Olives, Olives, but we also know that the other um, gospel accounts calls it the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the same place. but he just decides to call it the Mount of Olives because there are olive trees all around. And it says that Jesus came out of the upper room where he was with his disciples. He had just had the last supper that he would have with them before he would be crucified. And he came out of that upper room and then he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. But he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed. See, the implication of these verses is that Jesus had a regular custom and habit to go to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. In fact, it was so common for Jesus to go to the Mount of Olives to pray, that when, G- when Judas betrayed Jesus, he told the authorities where they could find Jesus because Jesus knew that they could catch him praying. Yes, See, this wasn't Jesus' first time around the block, y'all. This wasn't Jesus' first time praying. It wasn't his first time getting on his knees. It wasn't his first time going to this place that he had, that he would often go to to pray. See, Jesus had a habit of praying. And if the most powerful and the most, even if you don't agree that he's the most powerful, he is the most influential man to ever walk the face of the earth. If he had a habit and a routine of praying, I think we would be best served by following his pattern and develop a habit of praying ourselves. See, for too many of us, we are like the fisherman who wasn't in good fellowship with the Lord. And one day he was out on the sea fishing with his friends and none of them were believers at all. But then a storm came out on the ocean moving this way. 
and they wound up in trouble. And, and it was looking like the boat was going to sink or capsize. And the unbelievers called on that one Christian brother to pray. But he said to them, I've been out of fellowship with the Lord for a long time, and I haven't been praying to him regularly. In fact, I haven't even been going to church recently, and I don't even know if I can help, but, but I'll try praying. So he bowed his head, and he began to say, Lord, I know I have been out of fellowship with you. I know I haven't been in touch with you in probably about 15 years, but Lord, if you will help me this time, and if you'll bring us safely to land, then I promise you I won't bother you again for another 15 years. See, that's, that's how many of us approach our prayer life. We don't have a habit or a prayer routine. Instead of prayer being our first response, it's a last resort after everything else has failed us. And then we don't pray again until we're in another bind and tough situation that we think we can't get ourselves out of. But See, something, there is something of the worth of prayer that we see when we see how Jesus had a habit of praying. Can I encourage you to get in the habit of praying? To get into the habit of praying, I want to suggest you do at least three things. One, prioritize prayer. By that, I mean you need to have a time that you pray. I'm not saying that you're not to pray always without ceasing, But I'm saying you need to have some time in your day, appointed times in your day, that you prioritize prayer. Every night, Jesus was still away to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. They knew where to catch Jesus praying. And not only should you have a time to pray, but you also need to get in the habit of praying by having a place where you pray. Again, I'm not suggesting that you can't pray everywhere, but you prioritize prayer when you have a place that you go to pray. See, some people used to have prayer closets and some people used to get on the side of their beds and kneel down because that was their place of prayer. But I want to encourage you, whatever you have to do, have a place where you go to pray that prioritizes prayer. I know growing up, I've told you many times, my father, I think that the side of his bed was worn out in knee prints because that's where I would catch him praying. Where, where can people catch you praying? Because people ought to catch you praying. Because you need to be modeling for other people what it looks like to pray. See, we too often take it real casual. And we think that we can do prayer while we're doing other things. And you can. But sometimes you need to have a place where you get away and you are able to call out and cry out to God. In order to get into the habit of praying, you need to have a place where you pray. But also you need to have a time when you pray. But also you need to have a prayer posture. Now, it says in this passage that Jesus kneeled down. Verse number 41, the end part, he knelt down and prayed. Now, now I know again, y'all, I'm not saying that you always got to kneel to pray, but you need to have a prayer posture because when you physically demonstrate 
that your heart is postured in humility to God and that you're 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 letting go of your will and you're inviting his will. It helps you to prioritize prayer. I just want to try to help you prioritize prayer. Back in this day, it was common for men to stand up and bow their heads in prayer. But in this scene, we see Jesus doing something radical because in his time of darkness, he needed to do something different in order to posture himself before the Father. Listen to what Matthew chapter 6 says. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It goes on to say, Oh, where's that in my notes? Oh, I got to turn there. I thought I had it in my notes. Matthew chapter 6. It's all right because we can just turn there. Thank goodness I brought my Bible up here. (laughs) Verse number 6 says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees you in secret reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Listen, you need to prioritize prayer by having a place that you go to pray, a time that you pray. You You need to prioritize prayer by making sure that you have a prayer posture. Prioritize prayer. But not only do we see in this text that Jesus prayed habitually, but we also see that Jesus prayed honestly. See, not only did Jesus pray habitually, it says that he came and went as was his custom. But if you jump down to verse number 42, it says, Jesus prayed this, Father, if you are willing, would you remove this cup from me? See, when Jesus knelt down, he was praying Honestly to God, God, I am in agony right now, and I want this cup to be removed from me. And too often, I think that we get tripped up over prayer language. We think that we got to say certain things, but all you got to do is just tell Jesus all about your troubles. In fact, trouble God with whatever is troubling you. Because sometimes we can overcomplicate things when it comes to prayer. Talk to him openly and honestly because he can handle it. Matter of fact, he already knows what you're thinking anyway. And so you might as well just be honest with him and lay it bare before him. The people who are saying, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray about. I just want to encourage you, be honest with God. Talk to him honestly. Old folks used to say, have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your troubles. He'll hear your faintest cry, and he'll answer by and by. And when you feel a little prayer wheel turning, and you know the fire is burning, you can just have a little talk with Jesus, and he'll make it all right. All right, all right. See, when you pray, you don't have to heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do. Because they think that they will be heard for their many words. No, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6 that when we pray, we ought to pray like this. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, I believe that also what we see in this text is that Jesus didn't just teach them how to pray, but he practiced what he preached. Notice that after Jesus prayed that the cup would be removed, he also prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He had told them how to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And here Jesus is praying the prayer that he taught them to pray. He practiced what he preached. And we need to make sure that we practice what we preach. He is is praying here, and he also says to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. That's in the Lord's Prayer too. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, I believe that in this garden scene that Jesus is being tempted. He's being tempted to avoid the impending death that is coming his way. But he is saying, I'm praying because I do not want to give in to this temptation. He said, God, would you remove this cup? Nevertheless, God, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus practiced what he preached. And see, sometimes we need to we need to make sure we pray long enough for our will to conform to God's will. And that we would be able to accept that God will bring about the outcomes that he deems are best for that situation. Because I want to encourage someone to remember that God always answers our prayer. And yes, no is an answer sometimes. But as Tim Keller says, know that God will either give us what we ask for or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. But before I go on, I also must pause here to remind us that in Jesus, we have a savior who is not removed from our struggles. We see here in this scene that indeed Jesus was tempted in every way. Hebrews 4 and 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, Jesus, he he understood what it was like to be tempted. In fact, like I said, he could have avoided being arrested. And just like sometimes we are tempted to take the easy way out, Jesus knows what we're feeling. And instead of taking the easy way out, he allowed himself to be arrested because don't forget, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay down, lay it down and authority to take it up again. See, see, we need to remember that in our dark moments, in those agonizing moments, Jesus knows all about our struggles. And he will guide us to the day of is done for there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus no not one but another thing that we see in this passage the third thing that we see is that not only does Jesus pray habitually and pray honestly but we also see that Jesus prays earnestly most of us in our prayer prayer we give up too soon but we must pray earnestly and fervently and consistently it says it there 
that in verse number 44, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. See, he was was in agonizing pain, so much so that there were drops of blood falling to the ground like sweat from his brow. See, many of us, we, when it gets tough and when it gets agonizing, we quit praying too soon. Don't stop praying. Mark Batterson says it this way. Sometimes the bravest prayer is praying the prayer you've prayed a thousand times before. See, sometimes we give up because of the weight and the agony of the situation. But the more it weighs you down, the more you should stay down on your knees. And the reason we must follow Jesus' example of praying habitually, honestly, and earnestly is because it is in this way that we learn something of the worth of prayer. We learn something of its power, its value, and its benefit. Because I wanted you to notice that when Jesus prays in this way habitually, when he prays earnestly, and when he prays, what's the third one? Honestly, that he is given special power and strength to handle the pressure. When he prays in this way, he is given special power and strength to handle the pressure. Look at verse 33, 43 real quick. It says that after he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. I love how God gives Jesus what Jesus didn't even ask for because that's what God will do for us. Sometimes he will give us something we don't even ask for to help us with what we are going through. See, that's why we've got to pray because sometimes prayer doesn't always get us what we want, but it does give us what we need. Notice the contrast. The disciples fell asleep on prayer. And in a few chapters, they're going to cave under the pressure that was coming ahead. They would all scatter and abandon Jesus in his darkest hour under the pressure of that moment. Jesus has said, listen, pray that you may not enter temptation. But they slept on prayer. They slept on prayer, but Jesus didn't sleep on prayer. And as a result of the fact that he did not sleep on prayer, he received strength from an angel. I want to encourage somebody that if you will cry out to God in prayer, habitually, honestly, and earnestly, you'll get more than what you even hope for. Perhaps God does not remove the situation, but he will give you strength to endure the situation. I think about Paul. When Paul asked and prayed that that thorn would be removed from him three times. But God said, no, I'm not going to remove that thorn because my grace is sufficient. And my power is made evident in your weakness. See, that's what God will give us. He'll, he'll give us some strength to handle the pressure. But also, he'll give us power to f- fulfill his purpose. See, not only did Jesus receive power to handle the pressure, but he also received power to fulfill his purpose. Because right after this scene, Jesus gets up empowered to face forward. And he has been prepared and empowered by his prayer. 
See, there's something about prayer that allows us to conform our will to God's will. Jesus, in that agonizing prayer, says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And see, we need, we need to pray because sometimes being in the center of the will of God is not the safest place in the world. I know over and over again we hear in the church people say the safest place, place in the world is in the middle of the will of God. Y'all, Jesus is in the center of God's will. And he was in the most dangerous place in the world. And so we need to pray that God would wrestle our will out of the way so that we would have the power to fulfill God's purposes and God's plan and God's will. See, Jesus would lay down his life for us. He would stand up from his praying and he would go and give himself to die for us. In fact, he would go on to drink that metaphoric cup that he talks about. I believe that that, what was in that cup was a concoction of the wrath of God, suffering, sacrifice, and eventually death. But that's what Jesus would do. He would have the power to fulfill his purpose. And indeed, he does do that because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus, by praying, he was able to get the power to fulfill his purpose. I wonder if there's anybody glad that Jesus got that power to fulfill his purpose. That you now would have life through him. That you would know that his blood has saving power. But not only did that prayer give him the power to handle the pressure and power to fulfill his purpose, but it also produced a powerful result. See, the power did not stop at Calvary. Yes, he did bear our iniquities. But that's not where the power stopped. See, Jesus' prayer it allowed him, uh, God to produce a powerful result. Luke, I told you early, sets this scene up in the Mount of Olives, but we know that it's also called the Garden of Gethsemane. And we must remember that the creation account begins in a garden. It is in a garden where Adam and Eve would be tempted and fall into sin and death. It would be in the garden where they are cursed because of the decision that they made. But it is here in this garden that Jesus is attempted to avoid and avert death. He is tempted to take on, to not take on the sin of the world. But unlike Adam, Jesus does not cave into the temptation. He drinks that cup. He dies on that old rugged cross. 
that's not where the power stops. Because early on a Sunday morning, the women would go to another garden. They would go to the garden where the tomb was and that they would find that that tomb was empty. See, what we see is that Jesus' prayer, it produced the power to handle the pressure and to fulfill his purpose, but it also eventually produced a powerful result in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Indeed, he got up from the dead with all power in his hands. See, I believe that if you try praying, you can experience the power to handle the pressures of your life. You can experience power to fulfill your purpose, and you can experience power that will bring about a powerful result in your life. Try praying. You'll be receiving an email in just a little bit of a prayer journey to help you for the next 50 days as we're marching towards Pentecost Sunday to help you pray in earnest for three things. And I encourage you to print it out. We'll have some printed out for you today when you come to the Lord's Supper gathering. And over the next 50 days, I want you to try praying. I think that you'll find that you'll get the power to handle the pressure. You'll get the power to fulfill your purpose. And you'll get a powerful result. Thank you for listening. If you would like to know more about Triumphant Church, visit us at thetriumphantchurch.org or you can contact us at 301-559-2200.